through the patriarchs, those first uh, generations of faith to whom the promise of God came. And we've heard stories of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And today, fourth generation, we come to Joseph. So our reading, Ruth. Our reading is long, so you might want to follow it in your Bible. It's Genesis chapter 37, very well-known story. Genesis chapter 37, page 41, if you're reading it from the church Bible. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in hand. Now his brothers had gone to to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, they have moved on from here, the man answered. 
I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we find this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'm mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ruth. A huge passage and an even bigger story goes on for a few more chapters. Um, we get two looks at it this week and next week, <clears throat> so um, I shan't be able to do justice to everything that's in there. <clears throat> but I want to focus, uh, to begin with, on uh, Joseph's heritage. We all have heritage. We all have a heritage. The context in which we are born 
and in which our life is lived, a heritage of one sort or another. I think you're right. Thank you. The context of our birth and our family gives a place, a space, in which we are formed, for better or worse. For some of us, our family context is something we've been trying to deny and outlive and overcome all our life. And for others of us, our family context, our heritage is something which we relish and delight in. Joseph had a family context which shaped his life, for better or worse. His family was a family of faith. Three generations had encountered God and followed the one true God, won by his presence and majesty, thank you, sweetheart, and led by his promise. Three generations, one after the next. God had made a promise, a covenant, with Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is a big promise. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that promise was repeated to his son, Joseph's grandfather, Isaac. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Hear that family connection. Do not be afraid, for I am with you too, your generation. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And then to Joseph's father, Jacob, the third generation, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. I'm not going to go back over that old ground which we've looked at in the last three weeks, but it's no surprise that Joseph, born into this context of generational promise, of this family deep and... and um, and close and uh, um, powerful family connection, covenant relationship with God, the God of all, that Joseph too, fourth generation, shaped by generations of that promise, also understood himself to be a participant in it. And so he was unsurprised when God spoke to him in dreams of his future role. He knew he had been chosen. Some of us can trace our um, family ancestry back, generation by generation of, of family members who have loved the Lord and have been close to him. I have that privilege. Some of us, for some of us, we are the first generation, like Abraham. But God's promise is for each one of us as individual and then for our family and the families that follow us. As God has said, 
My blessing is on those who love me and their children and their children's children unto the thousandth generation. We have the opportunity to start that roll-on um, uh, family uh, relationship. I heard of one family who started meeting uh, yearly to worship the Lord and gathering their family and as generation followed generation, more and more people came back to this annual celebration of their relationship with the Lord. So Joseph had a heritage of faith. He also had a heritage of love. Abraham had loved Sarah. He loved her tenaciously over more than a hundred years. Here's to Abraham. Isaac had loved the wife who was chosen for him, his cousin Rebecca. And Jacob was so in love with his cousin Rachel that he worked for 14 years for the privilege of receiving her, her as his wife. My Rachel has wondered whether I would be prepared to work for 14 years for her. History is silent on that question. But Joseph knew that he was loved. For his late mother's sake, his father showered him with love. So he had a heritage of faith and a heritage of love. But he also had a heritage of enmity. He was born into a most dysfunctional family. Four generations of dysfunction. Abraham and Isaac had both denied their marriages to protect themselves. Abraham had taken his wife's maid as a concubine in order to kind of encourage on God's promise because it didn't seem to be working in order to, uh, um, to, to have a son through whom God's promise could come, to, come into being. And the result of that was hatred and enmity between Sarah and her maid Hagar and also enmity between their sons Ishmael and Isaac. And of course it was Ishmael's tribe and family Two generations, we just heard today, uh, came back to bite Joseph and to take him off into slavery. Isaac, been a weak father, given to favoritism and self-indulgence, married to a strong woman whose brother Laban was a real schemer, we hear, and who also seemed to have picked up something of that family trait. And the result of her scheming was hatred and enmity between her twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, with the same sly craftiness of his mother's family, fights a 21-year battle of wits with his uncle Laban, which leaves them both at loggerheads with each other, leaves him with two wives and two concubines when he'd only wanted one wife, and a family riven with factionalism. And their sons, too, now in the fourth generation, at loggerheads together, ready to tell tales, to murder, or sell into slavery. So Joseph also knew enmity. This is Joseph's context. 
when you look at yourself and your own context, maybe you see the strains of love and of faith, or maybe you see the strains of hostility and enmity. It doesn't matter what your context is, God can still speak into your life the words of promise and vision. It's into this context of faith, of love, and of enmity that at 17, Joseph receives dreams of destiny. We were binding sheaves of corn out in a field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. It seemed clear that there was some kind of family leadership role for him. And given the family promise to be a blessing to all nations, maybe an international leadership role as well. Sun, moon, and stars bind down to you. Sounds good, doesn't it? Jip found for me this following quote in a recent biography of Winston Churchill. Apparently, at the age of 16, in a conversation after Evensong at Harrow, he and a close friend ended up talking about their destinies. His friend remarked, you don't seem at all clear about your intentions or desires. That may be, Winston shot back, but I have a wonderfully clear idea of where I shall be eventually. I have dreams about it. I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world, great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in great danger. London will be attacked and I shall be very prominent in its defence. How can you talk like that, his friend Evans asked. We are completely safe from invasion since the days of Napoleon. Churchill continued undaunted. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I don't know, but I tell you, I shall be in command of the defences of London and I shall save London and England from disaster. Isn't that extraordinary? Clearly, Churchill and Joseph had this much in common. At about the same age, they were both given a clear vision or image of their place in the future. Dreams of destiny. I wonder if any of you have had an intimation of what God might be calling you to in your life. A word, a dream, a vision, a sense of compulsion. It can be intoxicating to think that God might want that much from me. That Jesus might give me the privilege of following him to such a dramatic place. So it's not at all surprising that the teenage Joseph didn't realize several very important things about his vision and the future. Here they are. Firstly, God's vision isn't for public consumption. For a start, this was a bit of a surprise to Joseph, other people, especially older brothers, don't take kindly to being told they're in the presence of a great one. Shocking, I know, but it's understandable that Joseph, endlessly the butt of family jokes, 
hated and sneered at for reasons he didn't really understand, should use this promise of God as a buttress for his self-esteem. Perhaps they'll back off and give me some space if they know what God thinks about me. But quite the opposite. They heard this dream and they saw yet another example of Joseph's boastfulness rubbing their nose in the offense of their father's favoritism. It wound them up to the point of murder. And even if they'd been a more friendly bunch, God's vision isn't given to us for our glory, but for his. Everything we learn from scripture about the people that God chooses shows that it's not about their greatness, but it's about God's ability to choose anybody and use them for his glory. When God chooses one of us, it's not because we're wonderful. It's because he is wonderful. So the appropriate response for Joseph would have been rather a humble and discreet astonishment that God should think of using him, using us, rather than cocky bragging. Joseph could have learnt much from the teenage mother of Jesus. Why has my Lord favoured me? Instead of telling the world, Mary found one trustworthy mentor with whom she could wonderingly share what she had heard and try to understand it and to work out the best way to prepare for it. If God gives you a big vision for your life, if God is giving us a big vision for our church, we might try writing it down and praying hard about it. And those prayers need to be mainly of the are you sure variety or the how can I be ready sort of prayer. And then carefully choosing someone wise with whom we can think it through. Secondly, God's vision isn't handed to us on a plate. It's an invitation, not a guarantee. You can blow it. You can choose to be lazy or throw your life away or you can dedicate yourself to God's purposes. As Mordecai said to Esther, if you remain silent, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. So if God has given you a vision, give yourself to obeying him now, and the time will come, his own time will come, when he will use you. Thirdly, God's vision, interestingly, doesn't automatically entail his favor or blessing or indeed close relationship with him. God can use anyone, even a Cyrus, a tyrannical, tyrannical enemy of his people to achieve his purposes. So God can use you whether or not you choose to be a willing participant in his plans. And he can use you whether or not you have a close relationship with him. But my question to you is, which is better for you? Is it to be a great and wonderful person that history adores or is it to 
somebody who is close to God. In the very long term, in eternal terms, which is better? If you aren't close to God, you won't have his favor or his blessing, even if he does choose to use you powerfully. Now this is related to what we were learning last week, that you might be part of an inherited family promise, but you still have to meet God for yourself. I know that there are some of us here who've come from generations of of churchgoers, of people who've loved Jesus, of of people who have followed his path. But we, ourselves, as individuals, have to meet God for ourselves. We cannot piggyback on our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith or our great-grandparents' faith. It's not a well-known fact, but I think I'm actually the fourth generation of vicars missing one generation. But I had to get here myself. I had to make my own connection with God and hear my own calling from him and follow him myself. So much more important for Joseph that he, like Jacob, like Isaac, like Abraham before him, learned to bow down to the God of his father than that his father should bow down to him. So if God has given you a vision, you need to draw close to him so that you can enjoy his blessing and his favor as well as being more ready for his service. Fourthly, God's vision can't be manipulated. So don't try to second guess God and engineer his vision into being. Abraham's low point came when he slept with Hagar to try to achieve the son that Sarah wasn't able to conceive. It caused no end of trouble for him and for God's people. Abraham had thoroughly learnt that lesson by the time of Isaac's arrival and he was ready to give Isaac up at God's word, trusting that God would fulfill his own promise in his own glorious way. If God has given you a vision then let him bring it to pass in his own way. You don't need to interfere. Fifthly, God's vision can't be hurried. Joseph thought this was a quick fix solution. Okay, he's having a really hard time with his brothers, a very hard time, but God wants something different. So God would reveal that to them, as he had to Joseph, that they were in the wrong. They would then recognize what God was saying and they would bow down to Joseph and life would be easier. All he had to do was share his dream with them and surely they would do what God wanted. How wrong he was and how long he would have to wait till his brothers did indeed bow down before him. So if God has given you a vision you may need to learn patience to wait for him to fulfill it. Sixthly, God's vision is costly. 
Knowing where God is taking you doesn't tell you the kind of road that you'll travel there, nor how much you'll sacrifice or change on the way. Joseph, age 17, did not understand that a good idea is free, but that a vision costs you everything. There's just no way, robed in his father's love and his technicolor dream coat, that he could possibly have guessed the journey to greatness would involve attempted murder, betrayal, slavery, hard labor, false allegation, prison, and the loss of absolutely everything. But as Joseph was stripped bare, he discovered several incredibly important things. Firstly, his defensive self-pity, with which he had armed himself as a, as a child, as a youngster, all got burned away in the crucible of his suffering to reveal the courage forged of identity. He discovered that he was held in God's hand and that that was better than wearing some royal robe. That integrity of character was better than winning favor. At the same time, his priggish self-congratulation with which he greeted the visions at first was crushed to reveal the power of servanthood. However little he had, he discovered he could always give out of himself. He could serve and bless others. These would be crucial discoveries that would enable him to fulfill God's vision for him. So if God has given you a vision, you need to be willing to surrender yourself for it to come true. And one final lesson, and this turns out to be the most important lesson of all. God's vision is not your vision. If the vision is yours alone, well, perhaps it will come true by dint of struggle and striving on your part. But if the vision is to be God's, you will have to see it die first so that he can raise it up as his own. As Joseph was stripped of everything he had, his dream coat, his security, his family and freedom, his dignity and reputation, everything, he even lost his dream. How could that picture from God of his leadership in his family's covenanted mission to bless the world, how could it possibly be fulfilled as a forgotten prisoner, slave in a squalid prison far from home? Joseph's vision died in that prison. And it became God's vision not just a vision of personal greatness and glory, but, believe it or not, of family healing for that most dysfunctional of families.
in Joseph at last. The utterly dysfunctional family of Abraham set at enmity and loggerheads with itself would at last discover how to forgive. A lesson they had never learned before. And not just family protection, but national salvation. In Joseph, for the first time, the promise to Abraham began to find fulfillment as a whole country was rescued from disaster. But looking further ahead, God's vision, not Joseph's, foresaw the disaster of slavery in Egypt and then that glorious exodus which would give birth to God's people as he named them for himself. God's vision saw priests and lawgivers, prophets and kings. God's vision saw the two who would be called the friends of God, Moses and David. God's vision saw the one that he would call his son, Jesus, whose Joseph-like sacrifice and service would win blessings for all nations and whose utter stripping in death would be clothed in resurrection to eternal glory. God's vision for Joseph was not in the end of himself, but of the one to come from Abraham's family line, the one to whom all nations would one day bow. And not only nations, but even the sun and the moon and all creation, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in earth and on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoever you are and whatever you've come from, Whatever the context that shapes you, God has a vision for you. It's a vision much bigger than you. It's a vision to fill your whole life and beyond in generations to come. But for the vision that God has for you to come about and be filled with his blessing, you need to be ready. You need to be willing. You need to be ready to give of yourself endlessly over time, patiently, courageously waiting. Giving yourself to obey God, to draw close to him, and to do his work. And you need to be willing for that vision for you to be broken and destroyed so that God, God himself can reach out and raise it up as his own vision. Humble yourselves under God's almighty hand that in due time he may lift you up.
Shall we pray? Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us to open our eyes to your vision. Show us a vision which is not for us, but which is for your glory. A vision for which we will need to labor and sacrifice and be patient. A vision which will draw us closer to you and which in your own time and by your own ends, you will use for the blessing of your world in ways we cannot possibly imagine. Lord God, Heavenly Father, give us a vision of your Son, our Savior and Lord, who is the only true and glorious vision, the one for which, above all and with all, and with all of our hearts, we long. Heavenly Father, let us see your Son, Jesus, and the coming of his kingdom in glory. Amen. Continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, we read in your word that where there is no vision, the people perish. But blessed is the one that heeds instruction. Father, forgive us for seeking after our own limited human vision rather than seeking after your godly and eternal vision. Forgive us for seeking to place our trust in our own limited view of what we consider as important in our lives and the world in which we live rather than seeking after the purer perspective of your eternal plans. Because when we have come to an understanding, only when we've come to an understanding of your purposes for the world, can we in honesty and in humility seek for godly wisdom and a godly vision. Lord, we pray thy will be done on earth and thy kingdom come. For in so doing we recognize that only with the Prince of Peace will there be lasting peace in the world. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to learn your vision and to pray your will, not only in our personal lives and those of the people we love, but help us also to come to a deeper knowledge of your greater vision for the future of everyone. When the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Help us, Lord, to soak our hearts in your perfect desire for humanity and to understand your greater purpose for us all. And give us the wisdom, Lord, we pray, to pray into your vision. For only as we align our minds to the mind of Christ and our will to the will of the Father, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit will we pray effectively. Open our eyes to see your vision so that we do not perish and instruct us in the way that we should go. And hear our cry to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. Well, we draw our time with the Father together um, with the last block of worship um, as the guys come up to lead. Um, as you're worshipping, be asking the Father if he has a vision for you. And if you have the least sense that that is what you want from God, um, that's what you're asking or that's what he's giving you, then come up and um, someone pray for you at the front or at the end of the service, go into the back corner. Someone would love to pray with you there. Um, But let us pray for each other for the vision that God has for us to be one that we can receive and give our lives to. This is my desire to honor you, Father. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. With all my heart and with all my life. May I give it to the vision that you have for me. Let's worship.